Hey there, Maureen Chiana here, founder of the Mindsight Academy, neuro coach to executives, leaders, entrepreneurs, and a neuro leadership trainer using insights from neuroscience to help you flourish and exceed expectations. Welcome back to another episode of Lead to Excel podcast. And as usual, I am so thrilled to be with you today because as we are about to come out of lockdown, I feel it's a good time to do this podcast. So today's podcast is titled Behavior Change as we Exit Lockdown. So without wasting much time, let's get into the podcast. With no vaccine or medication to cope with this novel coronavirus, people all over the world have been forced to change behaviors and actions in large and small ways. From more frequent washing of hands to social distancing with the move to learning and using online platforms. To beat this pandemic, we need an even more rapid change of behavior patterns. Now, according to WHO, as of 30th April, more than 3 million people have been infected with this virus and over 208,000 have lost their lives. My sincere condolences to all families who've lost a loved one, and I will use this opportunity to appreciate and commend health workers, laboratory staff, biomedical scientists all over the world who have put themselves on the front line to help save lives and come up with vaccines or medications to help stop this spread. The global spread of the virus has overwhelmed countries, health systems, and caused widespread social and economic disruption. We are now looking at coming out of lockdown, and this has to be managed effectively to avoid another spike. And one of the challenges is that it's really important that we stay connected because positive social relationships affect the hormonal cardiovascular and immune systems of the body, thereby enhancing health and well-being and the nature of relationships themselves. When people experience positive relationship with others, oxytocin, a health-enhancing hormone, is released in the body leading to lower blood pressure and heart rate and an enhanced ability to handle stress calmly. Positive social contacts lessen the physiological reaction in the body to stress, so the body works less hard to cope under the effects of stressful conditions. It also has a calming effect on the mind. The immune system is also positively affected by positive relationships, as people in positive relationships have greater resistance to upper respiratory infections, of which coronavirus is one of them. Positive relationships foster greater resiliency and an ability to adapt and bounce back from different experiences. The question though is, what's the next step? It's believed that COVID-19 pandemic began from bats near Wuhan in China. And these bats hold a mix of coronavirus strains. And sometime last fall, one of the strains, opportunistic enough to cross species lines, left its host or hosts and ended up in a person. Then it was literally on the loose. What no one knows yet, though, is how this pandemic will end. This coronavirus is unprecedented. 
in the combination of how easily it's transmitted, the range of symptoms going from none at all to deadly and the extent at which it has disrupted the world. The near exponential spread has made this a very new experience for even the scientists, but past pandemics offer some kind of hint of what the future might look like. While there is no historical example to follow, humanity has gone through several large epidemics in the past hundred or so years that eventually stopped ravaging the society. And the ways in which they were controlled offer guidance to how, I suppose, we can restore health and some sense of normalcy. And what that normalcy would look like, who knows? But one thing is, I believe that the new normal would be so different from pre-coronavirus days. And what happens next also depends on both the evolution of this pathogen and of the human response to it, both biological and social. So let's talk about how viruses spread generally. Viruses are constantly mutating and to cause a pandemic means that the human immune system does not respond quickly or recognize this dangerous invader. The body is thereby forced to create a brand new defense involving new antibodies and other immune system components that can react to and attack the invader. In most cases, Antibodies that are developed by the immune system to fight off the invader linger in enough of the affected population to confer long-term immunity and thereby limit person-to-person -person viral transmission. But that can take several years and before it happens, it can wreak havoc on the world or society. In the H1N1 influenza outbreak, of 1918, there were fewer resources available at that time to have an effective response or the kind of response we've been able to have today. And over a two-year period, they witnessed three waves of the pandemic where it infected about 500 million and killed over 50 million people. It ended only as natural infections conferred immunity on those who recovered. That H1N1 strain became endemic, circulating for another probably 40 years as a seasonal virus. Until 1957, when the H2N2 pandemic began, which kicked out the H1N1. In 2003, we also experienced another severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, which this time was not by an influenza virus, but by a coronavirus, which was the SARS-CoV. And this is believed to be closely related to the cause of this current pandemic, which is the SARS-CoV-2. Of the seven known human coronaviruses, four circulate widely, causing up to a third of common colds that we experience every year. The one that caused the SARS outbreak was far more virulent, but being able to isolate the sick and quarantine their contacts and also implementing social controls limited the outbreaks to a few locations such as Hong Kong and Toronto. This containment was possible because sicknesses followed infection very quickly 
and it was quite obvious where the source was from because almost all people with the virus had serious symptoms such as fever and troubling breathing and they also transmitted the virus after getting quite sick not before it's interesting that these other SARS were not actually contagious until maybe a week after symptoms appeared unlike this current one which we are experiencing where it seems that you're actually infected before you become symptomatic so when the h1 influenza virus which is known as the swine flu caused the pandemic in 2009 a vaccine was developed after six months and this was mainly due to the fact that it turned out not to be as virulent and initially feared unlike measles and smallpox vaccines which can confer long-term immunity flu vaccines only offer a few years of protection influenza viruses are very slippery because they mutate so rapidly to escape immunity as a result these vaccines must be updated every year and given regularly the 2009 vaccine for swine flu helped to temper a second wave of cases in winter so back to the question of how this pandemic will end how this pandemic will unfold is all speculative and it will most likely involve a mix of everything learned from these past pandemics that we've experienced things like continued social control measures to buy time new antiviral medications to help ease symptoms and hopefully at the end a vaccine the exact length of time of how long these control measures would be in place is really unknown a lot of people are asking the question how long would these control measures be in place the fact is that nobody knows because it all depends in a large part on how strictly people obey the restrictions and how effectively governments can respond for example containment measures that worked for covid 19 in places such as hong kong and south korea came far too late in europe and in the us the question of how the pandemic plays out is going to depend on social political and science if any of the several antiviral medications currently in development come out as being effective they will help improve treatment options and lower the numbers who get seriously ill or who die from the infection from my research i've discovered that there are a few techniques that have been developed to screen for covid19 things like neutralizing antibodies which is an indicator of immunity that has been developed from people who've recovered from the virus this could also prove to be very useful because this antibody rich blood from people that have recovered could then be used as a treatment for critically ill patients this can actually help get people back to work faster if those who have fought of the virus and are immune can be identified so that their antibody rich blood can then be used to treat people who have the infection or who are really ill it would definitely take a vaccine to stop transmission but that would definitely take a long time probably a year from now or even longer compared with flu viruses 
coronaviruses don't have as many ways to interact with the host cell. So the key is finding a vaccine that interferes with that interaction. Because once that interaction goes away, then it means that the virus cannot replicate anymore. And that's the advantage that we have here. It's not clear whether a vaccine will confer a long-term immunity like the measles vaccine or whether it would have a short-term immunity as the flu shots, which we already have. But the fact is that any vaccine at all would be helpful at this point. It is very possible that COVID-19 will become an endemic because it's literally impossible to administer the world's 8 billion inhabitants with this vaccine once it's developed. So this would mean that the virus will keep circulating and make people sick seasonally and sometimes maybe very sick as well. The combination of vaccination and natural immunity is what is going to protect many of us. The coronavirus, like most viruses, would live on, but not as a planetary plague as we're experiencing now. So what do we do to ensure that we can stay safe? We've got to carry on doing these small actions that we are doing now to achieve the big results that we want at the end. So it's about breaking the habits of a lifetime and creating slightly different habits. To embed these new behaviors that we've learned during lockdown, we need to keep having subtle reminders to remind people to keep those new behaviors going. For example, painting lines on the walking path would go a long way to help to show what a two meter separation looks like. A lot of grocery shops have started doing it and I believe this should be continued. Helping people break the habit of touching their faces is another important thing because the virus infects people through the mucous membranes that line the nose and airways. And I recently read about a suggestion of a possible software on smartphones which could alert people to stop touching their faces. The problem in all this is really compliance because it hinges on giving people the tools that they need to easily follow these new rules, but how much on how many will comply with it. So it's, it's the little small things that I believe would make a difference. And there was also a suggestion recently that if there's a mask available from the dispenser at the front of a building, people will more likely want to put it on. Same thing as the easy availability of things like hand sanitizers as well. But we need to make sure that we don't end up going back to where we've just come out from. So making these behavior changes easy to maintain is really what is important to ensure that we keep achieving the gains that we have achieved so far. It's been obvious that compliance during the pandemic started declining over time. So the government needs to take measures to avoid backsliding or having another wave so that whatever measure is put in place is really tolerable for people. I believe it's really opening leisure centers, things like golf courses, sports fields, parks as well, so that people can get outside without being crammed together indoors, which really has been a big issue for a lot of people, understandably. Organizations also now have to look at ways of making remote working a norm. 
So in all this, we know that ending the coronavirus lockdown will be a dangerous process and it's going to be a lot of trial and error. There's the unending question about what the exit strategy is going to be. And as someone rightly said, we've managed to get to the life raft, but the question is, how will we get to the shore? As every country is now looking at the path to move forward, governments now need to make sure that they triangulate the health of their citizens, people's freedom, and the economic constraints as well. And there are lots of questions to be asked and answered. How soon can schools be reopened? Will restaurants be reopened? And what will the nature of that be? What of bars? Would bars be reopened? What would that look like? Can people go back to their offices? And that whole process needs to be looked at where we're encouraging a lot of social distancing within the restaurants and bars and even at work, a lot of remote working, like as I explained earlier. Most researchers agree that reopening society will be a long haul. And it's going to be a lot of trying things out and seeing what works and what doesn't work. What is most important is that it has to be with baby steps. So in this next phase that we're going into, we're not now going to be looking at the numbers of people per day that have been infected. But now that the pandemic has been tamed in a lot of countries, the next focus is really trying to loosen restrictions while keeping the number of infected people to a very low minimum. When each infected person on average infects one other person, keeping the number of new cases steady is really vital. To regulate the spread and keep it at least below a certain number will involve isolating patients and possibly tracing their contacts. Border restrictions will still need to be in place to some extent and continued social distancing. It's also looking at countries that have gone ahead and have managed to keep the epidemics in check, like Hong Kong and South Korea. And they've done this through the use of being able to identify and isolate cases early and trace and then quarantine their contacts, while often imposing only light restrictions on the rest of their society. But this strategy depends on massively scaling up testing, which has been hampered by scarcity of reagents and other materials. Contact tracing is another hurdle and it's labor intensive. A recent suggestion was that mobile phone apps could help by automatically identifying or alerting people who recently had contact with an infected person. Google and Apple have teamed up to incorporate a contact tracing app in their operating systems. So it'd be interesting to see how that works. Germany, France and other countries are also developing apps. But the question is, can you make these technologies compulsory? I suppose China have done that, but how can a country ensure that enough people download an app for it to provide reliable information and also influence the spread of the disease? And another big question is, what actually counts as a contact? Because for someone that lives in a big apartment block, who is probably going to be getting dozens of notifications a day could be a problem. And also the widespread use of apps will further drive up the demand for testing as well. Is this something that countries can cope with? Many countries have started quarantining their returning citizens. 
which helps further minimize the risk of new introductions of the virus. And hopefully some of these measures would remain in place for a while to help reduce transmission domestically and also prevent the risk of new outbreaks from these returning travelers. Now, social distancing, which has been the backbone of this current strategy to deal with this pandemic, has slowed the spread of the virus. As we have seen, it comes at the greatest economic and social cost. And we know that many countries are so eager to now relax these constraints. Austria has taken the lead by opening small shops already. Other stores and malls are scheduled to be open later. And in some countries, their restaurants are following suit very soon. Because we've had no controlled experiments to know how effective different types of social distancing measures have worked, it's really difficult to make an evidence-based policy about what to do. So the fact is that as authorities around the world choose their different paths forward, a lot of comparison is going to have to be made to see what works and what doesn't work. So there's going to be a lot of experimentation. There's going to be a lot of trial and error because of politics and local situations. And people need to bear this in mind to prevent a lot of agitation as we've experienced with the lockdown. There's one other important factor that will also determine how safe it is to loosen the reins and that's immunity. Because every single person who becomes infected and develops immunity makes it harder for the virus to spread, which is a great thing. So if we get roughly about 40% of the population immune, that really starts to change the whole picture because this will help the immunity to build up as more people become infected. So the exit strategy for now, the most likely scenario is going to be one of easing social distancing measures when it's possible, then possibly climbing down again when infections climb back up or the strategy that Singapore and Hong Kong are pursuing, which is a suppress and lift strategy. So whatever strikes the right balance between keeping the virus at bay and easing discontent and economic damage is going to be one of our main options. I feel that it will take years of painstaking research to sharpen the picture of the real impact and reach of this virus. And as science races ahead, with intensive research, we might actually end up in a similar situation to what we have with HIV, where an effective vaccine was never developed. So the treatment of coronavirus might actually be with a combination of different drugs. I feel that what is important now is that people need to be alert and aware that behaviors need to be changed. And to really be able to embed these new behavior patterns, there has to be subtle messages and reminders so that people don't slip back into old habits and whereby we end up back having another wave of this virus. So a lot of unknowns. And the fact is that we've got to really appreciate and accept the fact that the government don't know. Their scientists don't know. 
nobody knows. So we're really just trying things out. And it is really a strategy of trial and error because we do not know what the right thing is. So I think everyone needs to be patient. Everyone needs to do their bit and everyone needs to be alert so that we can move really fast to take what action we need to take to really get us to a place where the infection is steady and hopefully less people are dying from it as well so that we can get to a place where most of the population have built up an immunity to this COVID-19 virus. So I hope you found this really useful and I hope it has also given you hope that we can get through this because we will get through it but we just need to be patient and not get ourselves agitated because the more agitated people get then the more prone they are to actually getting the infection and probably getting it really bad so it's really important that everyone is resilient both physically emotionally and and professionally in any way that you are, we need to be resilient. We need our immune system to be resilient and we need to keep ourselves healthy so that we can fight this infection and really be able to make the right decisions as a, at a government level, as a family level, at a business level, at whatever capacity or area we are. So I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And please give me a five-star review so that my podcast can reach more people and help more people. Do look after yourself, keep well, and do stay safe. Have a great week.